Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 26. And this week, we are going to be talking through some more Psalms. Psalm uh, 60 through Psalm 90. It's about 30 Psalms. And guess what? You can give yourself a pat on the back because it is week number 26, and that means we are halfway through our reading for the entire year. So from this point onward, it's all downhill, you might say. So you can see how much content is in the Old Testament versus how much is going to be in the New Testament. In fact, I think we don't even get to the New Testament until we start the month of October, I think it is. So you can see how big and how much reading is in the Old Testament, but also how valuable it is because it sets a a foundation down for the New Testament that we have to understand. So let's pick up here with Psalm 60. And the occasion for this psalm was Israel's victory over the Arameans and the Edomites. 2 Samuel 8, 1 Kings 11, and 1 Chronicles 18 talk about this incident. And Israel has suffered defeat in battle. And even though they cannot identify any moral infraction as its cause, um, but they still decide they need to go to God in prayer about it because they know that with God they will gain victory. And without Him, they cannot have victory. So as the simple reminder for us today as well, that with God's help, we can do what he asks of us. Now, Psalm 61 reminds us that when we are overwhelmed, we must go to the rock. And the idea of God being personified as a rock is a common theme you'll find in the Psalms. In fact, Psalm 18 is a good example, and the next Psalm, Psalm 62, is also another great example. And David had used the rocks in the Judean wilderness as places of refuge and protection during the years he was forced to hide from Saul. And so it seems that David knew many of these places very well. He knew which ones would offer him the best protection and which ones may not offer him the best protection. But the psalmist also uses other imagery about God's protection. He is a fortress. He is a strong tower. He is a sanctuary. He is a sheltering mother bird. All these images provide us with the unmistakable concept that God is our rock. Psalm 62 also uses rock imagery, but here its focus is on God's permanence and his reliability. David encouraged us to learn to trust in the Lord and stand on him as our foundation. You know, human beings are constantly deciding whether to trust in what they can see. And David helps us to understand that God himself is a much better person to trust than any mortal man because he, unlike human beings, will remain faithful forever. Psalm 63 tells us that David penned this psalm while he was in the wilderness of Judea away from the ark and the place of formal worship. This psalm is a very powerful one. Uh, Read it a few times if you get a chance. Meditate on the person and works of God. It can bring refreshment to any believer. It can help reinvigorate a stale time in your life. But meditation on God is a basic need for all, just like food and drink are basic for all. But here it's specific as to meditate on the love of God, because that is what brings us satisfaction. Psalm 64 It's not very often that David finished the psalm without any reference to his enemies. Even in the famous Psalm 23, he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine, there's the word, enemies. The fact that David mentions his enemies so much gives us an idea of how many he had and what his life as the king of Israel was like. You know, in politics, as well as in any other vocation, careers can often be ruined by accusations. And when we think of the evil that can be done by words... It's helpful to remember that while the most effective weapons of the wicked might be their words, words are also the weapons of of the Christian or of the Holy Spirit. 
The words of the righteous are effective, especially when they are offered in a spirit-filled prayer. As James chapter 5, verse 16 reminds the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Even in the book of Revelation, it said that the warfare of the saints against Saint Satan is due to the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Psalm 65 is a song that celebrates God's blessings of his people with a bountiful land. In spite of man's sin and the curse that was brought upon creation by man's sin, God blesses the earth with many good things. And the last verse of this psalm reminds us that if nature is going to cry out and shout to God for joy, then what's our excuse? Psalm 66 is a thanksgiving psalm that extols God's power in general and then moves to specifically God's work on behalf of his chosen people Israel. Specifically, Israel's time in Egypt and their exodus from Egypt are mentioned in this psalm. God demonstrated his sovereignty to the world by delivering his people from the bondage of the world. So we should also proclaim what Jesus has done for us. Jesus delivered us from the bondage of sin through his death. Is not that something to celebrate and make known to all? Psalm 67 is a brief psalm with an important reminder to Israel. You see, God's original intent, intent, excuse me, according to Isaiah, was to bless Israel so they would become a light to the nations. She, she succeeded at times, like in the days of Solomon's early reign, but much of the time she failed to be the light that the world needed. In the New Testament, Jesus came to be that light for all the world. But one day in the future, Israel will fulfill her destiny of being a light to the nations when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom on earth. Then all the nations of the world will rejoice because of her and because of that light that she brings to the world. Psalm 68 is a psalm that may have been used at festivals or celebrations that included our reciting of Israel's history. The psalm praises the Lord for coming down to rescue his people from bondage, leading them through the wilderness and caring for them, defeating enemies in the land, choosing Jerusalem as his dwelling place, ascending to its heights in triumph and receiving praise and honor for the victory. For all the benefits derived from God's mighty conquest, the people of God offer their praise and anticipate that others will come to offer tribute to the great God and King. Now, for the Christian, the correlation to Christ is made clear by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4. In Christ, God came down to deliver people from bondage by defeating all the enemies. But the enemies in Christ's victory are sin, death, and Satan. It was a spiritual victory primarily, but that does not exclude the fact that it was also a very physical victory through the resurrection. And once he accomplished the conquest, he literally and physically ascended on high, not to an earthly mountain, but to a heavenly place, the city of God. And there, as he, as and there, as the enthroned king, you might say, he receives all glory, honor, and tribute. Psalm sixty-nine is important because after Psalm twenty-two, Psalm sixty-nine is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. The psalmist is suffering at the hand of his enemies, not for any crime he's committed, but because of his zeal for the household of the Lord. And even his family and close friends are unsympathetic to his cries. His only recourse is to cry to the Lord for deliverance, and that prayer includes a request for the complete devastation of his enemies. Now, this is not a messianic psalm per se, but some New Testament authors like to apply its message to the sufferings of Jesus. So as you read through it, you might think of that. 
when we set it in our hearts to glorify God, many people will oppose us and persecute us. Just like when Jesus did the Father's work on earth, the people persecuted him. But the persecution and suffering did not deter Jesus from going to do the Father's will. In the same way, opposition to the work of God should not drive us away from God, but drive us to Him to obtain the grace we need to remain faithful to what He has called us to do. Psalm 70 is very familiar, excuse me, is very similar to Psalm 69, but just a shorter version. You know, when we are under attack by others who oppose God's will, all we can do is cry out for help. I'm reminded of Nehemiah, who much of the work of rebuilding the wall was opposed constantly by enemies left and right, within and without. However, his weapon and one of the book's major themes was that of prayer. Now, Psalm 71 is a psalm written by a believer approaching old age, you might say. Someone who had trusted in the Lord all his life and continued to trust. And this psalm draws on past experiences to build confidence for, um, for prayer in the current crisis. And he draws on that confidence for his praise when his prayer is answered. You know, we find that a mature faith brings security to your spiritual life and stability to a church, to a congregation. It's not surprising then that James instructs the people to call for the elders to pray for the sick in James chapter 5 verse 14. Nor is it difficult to understand why Paul said that the elders should not be recent converts, 1 Timothy 3, 6. The status of elder is not a matter of age, but of spiritual maturity. And the church needs to draw on the faith of older men and older women who have trusted the Lord all their lives. What a good psalm that is. Psalm 72 is a royal psalm attributed to Solomon and likely composed on the occasion of some kind of anniversary. Solomon wrote of the blessings that God bestows through his anointed rulers. And because the Lord had appointed the king and because he ruled righteously, Solomon expected his reign to be far-reaching. Although this psalm describes the reign of Solomon, it also anticipates the rule of his successor, Jesus Christ, in that future millennial kingdom. Psalm 73 in Quite in fact, I guess the next, uh, I think, 10 psalms were written by Asaph. In this psalm, Asaph admitted that in the midst of life's difficulties and dangers, he had perceived that evil people seemed exempt from God's judgment. It's a reoccurring theme we find in psalms. Uh, these evil people, they refuse to acknowledge God and seem to be blessed in spite of their thinking. But as he reflects on those thoughts, he comes to the realization that the prosperity of the sinners is only just a mirage. In reality, the righteous are the ones who are blessed, especially as they're blessed with divine guidance. Now, Psalm 74 laments that it seems like God has abandoned Israel. We know he hasn't, but it seems like he has. It seems that this psalm is a reference to the destruction of the temple. In despair, Asaph exclaims his pessimism as both God's miracles and his prophets seem non-existent at this time. However, reflecting on the mighty acts of God in the past, he's awakened to the possibility of renewal. And on the basis of God's covenant promises, he pleads that God would take vengeance upon those who shamed and humiliated his people. This psalm teaches us that we can build our confidence in our prayer lives by reminding ourselves of God's great victories in the past. Psalm 75 is different from many of the psalms in that it begs God to act on behalf of the righteous. There's no begging, no questioning, no frustration, no struggle, no envy. None of these things are in this psalm. That's why it's kind of unusual. And although God's way of ruling the world is puzzling at times and judgment seems to be delayed, 
rest assured that God is always near. His judgments are right on time. He is never late, and the wicked will eventually be punished in full for the evil they have done. Now, whether this comes in this life or the life after is not a consideration in this psalm. The psalmist is content. Let me say that again. He's content to know the simple fact that God will take care of it, and that's enough for him. And if God says that he will take care of it, then we need to rest in the fact that he is in complete control of the situation. Psalm 76 shows that a true appreciation of God's power can and should produce submission and worship. The Lord's power has been displayed in history when he has intervened to judge the wicked. Such wicked enemies thought they were supreme, but instead they are helpless against the Lord when he begins to act. This foreshadows the mighty judgment yet to come as is detailed in the book of Revelation. Psalm 77 finds Asaph as describing himself as tossing and turning on his bed, unable to sleep. He found that meditating on God's deliverance of his people in the Exodus brought him comfort. One author said it this way, Meditation on the power and love of God revealed in his great acts of deliverance will turn lamentation into praise and comfort. I think it's the same way for us today. Meditation on the power and love of God revealed and how he has treated us graciously in the past will turn our present circumstances into a time of praise and doubt into a time of comfort. Now, Psalm 78 is a really interesting psalm as well because it contains all the significant moments of Israel's history with a little bit of commentary along the way. The reason for composing such a psalm is stated in verse 7 of this psalm. Uh, let me read it. So each generation should not set its hope anew on God, nor forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. This would enable them to avoid the mistake of their ancestors who were stubborn, who were rebellious and unfaithful to God. And critical to the message of this psalm is the use of remember and forget, two key words that you find here, and, and they're used for God and for the people. They forget God and his wonderful works, but God does not forget them. Moving on to Psalm 79, the setting here is the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. This psalm is actually still recited at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem on Friday afternoons, as well as it's also used in the liturgy uh, for the 9th of Ab, a fast day that commemorates the temple's destruction. So this psalm is still in, in use today by Jews. This was likely to be the worst day in Israel's history when the temple was destroyed. But even in the darkest hour, God had not abandoned them. The psalmist pleads with the Lord not to, excuse me, with the Lord to forgive their sins and deliver them from their plight for his name's sake. And no matter what the circumstances may be, we should still have a desire to praise the Lord for his sustaining grace and his deliverance. Psalm 80, the focus of this psalm is on the destruction of the nation of Israel because of its spiritual defection. God's people are similar to a grapevine in that God has called us to be a blessing to others. However, if we do not walk in trust and obedience, God may prune us back and limit our amount of fruitfulness. Psalm 81 celebrates a new moon festival, and this is probably in reference to Rosh Hashanah or the Jewish New Year's Day. Uh, this psalm is a joyful celebration of God's delivering of his people. It is important, as we have noted before in the psalms, that we are instructed to review God's past acts of grace and blessing on our behalf. In doing this, we're challenged to remain faithful to him in the present, which we know can be a daily battle. Now, Psalm 82 is a psalm composed by Asaph, where he, um, wherein he gives us encouragement that God is the one who will judge all things, 
Even supernatural beings who fell from heaven, demons, they will be judged. The Lord can and does remove corrupt leaders, as he did from time to time in ancient Israel. But he will fulfill this oracle once and for all at the end of the age. God has given over all judgment to the Son, who will carry it out with equity. A judge who will judge righteously. Psalm 83 is a national lament in which the psalmist prays for the Lord's intervention against the many enemies of Israel. He lists some 10 different enemies in this psalm. And the psalm teaches us that prayers based on God's reputation, his promises, and his past faithfulness are petitions that God will answer. However, God deserves the right to decide the correct time in which he will act. The next psalm is Psalm 84, and it's one of the pilgrim psalms that a Jewish person would sing as they travel to the Holy Land or sanctuary to worship God. The psalmist added that the impulse for worship ought to be so strong that it will overcome any obstacle that might stand in the way. The author of Hebrews captured this idea when he said not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as some churches had already been doing. Verse 10 of this psalm is a favorite by many. Let me paraphrase it. One day of fellowshipping with God is a thousand times better than anything else. You know, in the New Testament, the early church eagerly met together for the teaching of the word, for the breaking of bread, for fellowship, and for prayer, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The early Christians needed the reality of the Lord's presence as they tried to live in a world that was antagonistic to the faith. Psalm 85 is filled with some very important terms, righteousness, peace, loyal, love, truth, fear, glory, salvation, just to name a few. When people get right with God in the fundamental areas of his life, his blessings are not far behind. However, we have to wait for him to provide blessing after repentance as God patiently waits before bringing judgment for sin. How many times are we guilty? Are we in a place where we should be judged, but God graciously, God graciously and patiently waits for us to turn ourselves around. Far too many times, I think we could say. Psalm 86 begins, like many other psalms, a prayer of deliverance from opposition or an enemy. But what is unique in this psalm is a desire to be taught the way of God and a desire to have a single-minded focus on Him. Rather than exhibiting panic in the face of danger or uncertainty, we ought to show peace and confidence, even joy. This is the attitude that we need to learn. Our confidence in God can stay any attack or storm because we know how great and how loyal our God is. Psalm 87 is a brief song that was likely written sometime after the occasion when Jerusalem was delivered by uh, a direct act of God, intervention almost. The presence of God reigning among his people at this site constituted a blessing to them and to all the other nations, very similar to what it will be like during the millennium where the reign of God's kingdom on earth will be a blessing to all the other nations. Now, Psalm 88 is one of the saddest psalms. It speaks of a person who suffered intensely over a long period of time, but yet that person continues to trust in the Lord. It sounds a lot like what Job struggled through in his time of suffering. When God does not relieve affliction that the believer needs, they must, they must continue to pray that God will eventually relieve their suffering. Remember, in the midst of suffering, we run towards God, as we learn from Job, not away from God. Now, Psalm 89 is a royal psalm that focuses on David as servant of the Lord. In other words, this psalm is tied to the Davidic covenant. We talked a ways back 
in 2 Samuel 7 about the Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with David that has three important elements, and the one at play here is the promise of a dynasty to David. His line would not be cut off, and there would always be someone from his line ruling. And the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant will be Jesus, who was from the line of David and will rule during that millennium. But the psalmist was worried because it looked like God was forsaking his covenant. But even though God seems to be disciplining David in the psalm, he has not, nor will he ever cut him off because his promises are true and faithful. Now, this last psalm that we're going to talk about today is Psalm 90. And Psalm 90 is one of my favorite psalms. And it's from what I understand, the only psalm attributed to Moses. It's possibly written towards the end of of his life. It reflects on the eternality of God and the frailty of man. It reminds me of the height and depth of God's love for me. It reminds me to set my priorities straight each day on the only one who matters. It reminds me that I cannot hide from God. It reminds me that the suffering that I face in this life has a purpose. It reminds me of God's mercy that I'm constantly left off the hook for my sins. It reminds me that a wise person is one who understands that the brevity of our lives is designed to show the eternality of God. It reminds me that I must use my time wisely because I am not guaranteed a long life. It reminds me that when I wake in the morning, God's love for me has not changed. It reminds me that just as God has worked mighty deeds in the past, I should be anticipating his handiwork to show up again. It reminds me how desperately I desire to see God's work on behalf of my children. It reminds me that whatever little I can contribute to church is only successful because he makes it successful. Well, that's all the time that we have for this week. I hope you enjoy your reading through the Psalms. Next week, we'll pick up with Psalm 91. And we'll be getting into Proverbs before you know it. So if you have any questions, email them to BibleReadingAtLMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.